0: everyone, and welcome to a brand new edition of the S Factor, where it's all about science, right here on Cruising 92.1 WVLT. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer of ScienceAnimated.net. Now, the S and S Factor stands for science. Now, some of the things I've covered over the last three years on the S Factor here has to do with artificial intelligence. You can't help but marvel at what is to come. Of course, there are people that are afraid about what the future has in store as far as you know the intermingling of technology and our lives is concerned because let's face it in some respects technology as awesome as it has become it really has penetrated our lives more and more and more now one person at the forefront of artificial intelligence is Elon Musk he's working on that neuralink which is kind of like fusing us with technology giving us the capability of accessing the internet much faster. And of course, you know, once that's achieved, once artificial intelligence is really achieved, and to me personally, that means artificial intelligence being self-aware. Until we hit that, artificial intelligence, to me personally, is really, it's not really sentient. It's just a very sophisticated piece of programming that has been established it can go off and branch in different directions, like with Google, Google DeepMind, when it actually created its own language and they shut it down. Us humans, we have to understand what the artificial intelligence is doing. I mean, if we don't know what it's doing, that could have dire consequences in innumerable ways when it comes to our lives and our safety and things like that. But there, there's such a plus side to artificial intelligence, and that's why so many companies are pushing that way. And like I've said before on the radio show here, Mark Cuban once said that the world's first trillionaire, that'll be the person that establishes artificial intelligence and licenses it and puts it out there for the world to use. And they get a piece of the action every time someone uses that service. So that is an unbelievable way to create wealth when you get a piece of of something that is put out there. And that's what he meant by, by that, in my opinion, when He said they will become the world's first trillionaire because if you license that, if you perfect it and get it out there, everyone's going to use it. So everyone's going to pay you a little something for using that service. So Elon Musk is concerned that artificial intelligence will get out of hand. So he created Neuralink. So we fuse with the artificial intelligence when that time comes. Listen, I don't know when that's going to be. I don't think anyone really does. It may be sooner than we think. It may be later than we think. So Elon Musk was in the news somewhat recently here for having another, another concern, and he's, he's concerned that the population is going to collapse. Now this from uh, Yahoo Finance. A solution to Musk's fear of population collapse? Artificial womb facility could grow 30,000 babies a year. A billionaire, Elon Musk, has frequently spoken about his concerns about overpo- underpopulation. He has mentioned that people should focus on having more babies to resolve the problem of low birth rates and population collapse. Musk shared how the COVID-19 pandemic had resulted in a lower birth rate instead of the baby boom expected due to people being forced to stay indoors. Now, a birthing facility could answer Musk's concerns about the world's low birth rates. The world's first artificial womb facility, Ectolife, promises to produce customized babies. Film producer and biotechnologist Hashim Al-Ghali have created the technology which would allow women who have had their uterus removed to procreate while also reducing premature births and combating population declines, reports the Daily Mail. Running on renewable energy, the facility plans to house 75 labs, each equipped with up to 400 growth pods or artificial wombs, reports the media outlet. Have any, any of you ever watched The Matrix, the, the first one, with Keanu Reeves? Now, The Matrix is like a simulated reality. And suddenly, Keanu Reeves, he wakes up and he's in this pod. Now, the pods are designed to replicate the real-life condition of the mother's womb and include sensors that monitor the baby's vitals, like a heartbeat, temperature, and oxygen saturation. Ectolife aims to grow up to 30,000 babies a year inside its birthing pods. Now, Al says the concept is based on 50 years of groundbreaking scientific research conducted by researchers worldwide, and such birthing pods could be widespread in just decades from now. Al believes that artificial womb facilities could become a reality in 10 years if ethical restrictions are removed. According to the report, an elite package would allow people to genetically engineer the embryo before implanting it into the artificial womb. Also, parents can select their baby's level of intelligence, height, hair, eye color, physical strength, and skin tone. Al Galee says every single feature mentioned in the concept is 100% science-based and has already been achieved by scientists and engineers. The only thing left is building a prototype by combining all the features into a single device. He was quoted as saying by the Mirror. Al claims the artificial womb facility can help countries facing the problem of a declining population, such as Japan, Bulgaria, and South Korea, among others. In terms of time frame, it depends on the ethical guidelines. Right now, research on human embryos is not allowed beyond 14 days. After 14 days, embryos must be destroyed due to ethical concerns. Now, what do you think about this? Now, Now we're going into the realm of possibly achieving the ability to have designer babies. Designer babies. You get to choose all of these attributes of the child. Height, weight, intelligence level, I mean, whatever. Would you do something like that? I mean, this is really something else. This is, talk about science fiction, possibly becoming science fact. I want to know what you think about this. Would you do something like this? Do you think it's ethical? Contact me. Send me an email. Info at scienceanimated.net. That's info at scienceanimated.net. There are no phone calls on this show here because it's pre-recorded. But I want to know what you think about this. I'm really good at answering my emails. I answer everyone that, that sends me a message. Also, you can reach me on my Facebook page, facebook.com scienceanimated. And also on Twitter and YouTube, you can send me a message. I would love to know what you all think about this. Yes or no. But this is, these are the questions. These are the ethical questions we're going to have to ask ourselves in the future. How far into the future? Again, who knows? These designer babies, this whole thing here with designer babies and this technology, we will get there. And here's my question to you. Should we do it or should we not and why? Send me a message, info at scienceanimated.net. Now, there's been another topic out there that is very intriguing to me, and it's kind of surprising that it hasn't gotten a lot of mainstream, I mean, it has gotten mainstream attention, but it doesn't seem like the average person cares a whole lot about, about this, what I'm about to talk about here. The issue of, you know, the Pentagon coming out and saying, listen, you know, these unidentified aerial objects. We don't know what they are. We're telling you guys right now it's not us. Uh, We're not sure if a foreign power could even do these maneuvers or have this kind of technology. It's amazing. It hasn't really sparked any uh, widespread interest uh, like uh, I would think it would, you know, if the possibility of something visiting our planet. Now, to me, I, I have no idea if ETs exist. I have no idea. I don't know. They may, they may not. I don't know. But I have looked up in the night sky... In a remote area before, and if you have never done it, at some point in your life you should get away from the city lights. And you know, I I was visiting relatives in North Carolina, uh, in the mountains, and that's a great place to do this. And you know, just look up to the sky; it is amazing what you see. You see a multitude of stars that you normally would in your in your city or town because when a city and a town have have street lights on street lamps, for example, and not just that, but everybody having their lights on you know at night, what it does is put it puts light pollution into the air, which means it just it's not dark enough to see everything in the night sky. So when you go to a remote location like in the mountains and you look up, what you see is absolutely spectacular. So when you do that and you really see the night sky as it's meant to be seen, I could see how people would say. We can't be alone in the universe. So maybe we aren't alone. Now, the the following from space.com has to do with the potential of extraterrestrial life. Why haven't aliens contacted Earth? New Fermi paradox analysis suggests we're not that interesting yet. (laughs) Go figure, right? All this technology that we have, look what we've done in the last 100 years alone. And you're telling me we're not interesting? Well, let's see what what it says here. If life happened here, then it likely happened elsewhere. But as far as we can tell, we're totally alone, so where is everybody? A new analysis proposes an alternative solution to this conundrum, known as the Fermi Paradox. Perhaps we're just being impatient. Maybe with a multitude of worlds to potentially study, alien civilizations would likely wait for one to start broadcasting their presence before sending a probe. So if we wait a few hundred or a few thousand years somebody might come knocking, as famed physicist Enrico Fermi purportedly said during a casual lunch lunch conversation in 1950, where is everyone? Intelligent life arose here on Earth, but we are certainly not the only planet in the universe. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, likely contains up to a trillion worlds, and it is one of up to two trillion galaxies in the entire cosmos. Sure, most planets are completely inhospitable to life, but physical processes don't really happen just once. If nature can make life here, with a sheer number of other planets, it should happen elsewhere. And presumably, some of those intelligent critters would start building spacecraft and exploring their neighborhood. Given enough time and effort, they could spread themselves or something robotic far and wide. Even if they averaged only a tiny percentage of the light of speed of light, they could essentially swamp the entire galaxy in only a few million years. Even if most intelligent civilizations fail in an attempt, or simply move on to other things, the fact that our galaxy has existed for over 10 billion years means that at least one civilization should have already visited our solar system, or at least left some sign of its existence, and yet nothing. We have absolutely no evidence for any extraterrestrial civilization, let alone life. This is Fermi's great paradox. If life can happen, it should be common. And if it's common, we should already know about it. But we don't. Over the decades, astronomers have proposed many solutions to this puzzle. One idea, called the Rare Earth Hypothesis, says that perhaps life really is special and unique on the cosmic scale. In this scenario, life is so incredibly rare that we may be among the first creatures or any kind to arise in the Milky Way. In other words, the circumstances that led to the emergence of life on Earth are so special that even with trillions of other worlds, life happened essentially only once. Another proposed solution, known as the Great Filter Hypothesis, postulates that perhaps life is common, but intelligent life is difficult. After all, life appeared relatively early in the history of our planet, but it took billions of years for intelligence to arise. This means that perhaps we're incredibly lucky to have the brains we do. So while we may find bacteria or other simple organisms throughout our galaxy, we're unlikely to meet anybody capable of conversation. Now, a new paper written by Army Wandel of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and published in a in the Blueprint database puts forward a new explanation. Because we only recently arrived on the cosmic scene in the sense of being able to broadcast our presence... Through radio transmission, maybe we're just maybe we just need to wait a bit. Now, Wendell argues that while we can't imagine the technological capabilities of advanced alien civilizations, their powers aren't infinite. They still have to deal with mundane issues like energy capture and storage, waste heat, information processing, and a finite amount of time. With up to one trillion potentially habitable planets in the galaxy and even more if you include uh, water-rich moons such as Europa, it seems reasonable to assume that these alien civilizations wouldn't be able to send active probes or messages to every single one. However, it's much easier to build large, sophisticated listening stations than active probes, so the aliens would probably wait. Eventually, some intelligent civilization will arise in the galaxy and figure out the magic of radio. Inadvertently, or otherwise that civilization would start broadcasting their presence through unambiguous artificial signals. If the aliens were able to receive a signal, they would spring into action, crafting a message of their own or even a probe to visit their new friends. But all this takes time, a lot of it. We've been broadcasting for less than a century, meaning our radio bubble is less than 200 light-years wide, compared with the 100,000 light-year width of the entire Milky Way. So it may take hundreds or thousands of years for our signals to reach an alien civilization. If they respond with a signal of their own, we could get it in another few thousand years. That is, if we see it at all. Because we would have to be looking in the right direction at the right time to capture it. If the aliens decide to send a probe, it will have to crawl along the interstellar depths at a fraction of the speed of light, so it would take even longer to get here. So maybe we're not alone, after all, and our galaxy is home to many other advanced civilizations. They just haven't answered our call yet. And I've heard this before, too. You know, there's such a vast amount of space between us and our nearest star system, for example. But maybe we're thinking about this the wrong way. Maybe, you know, we use rocket fuel still. I don't think we're going to be traveling that way once we seriously do travel in an interstellar way. We can't rely on any kind of fossil fuel. There has to be a new energy source. There has to be an innovative way of capturing maybe the sun's energy and storing that and using that to propel you. Something has to change because the this space is far too great. Now, just to give you an idea of how far away the nearest star system is to our sol- solar system, the nearest star system to us is Proxima Centauri. Now, it's four light years away. Now, the fastest spacecraft so far launched into space, which is the NASA Germany uh, Helios probe, traveled at 250,000 kilometers an hour. At that speed, it would take the probes 18,000 years to reach the nearest star. 18,000 years, folks. All of these ideas are incredible things to think about. Very exciting. And let's face it, folks, if we want to survive as a civilization... We have to at least spread out through our own solar system and beyond because it'll give us a greater chance of our species surviving because there are there are a lot of dangerous things that can happen to us on Earth that could end our civilization or things that could come from space. And that's why Elon Musk is, that's one of the reasons why he's so, he's so obsessed about space travel because he wants us to preserve our civilization. And the only way really to ensure our survival is to venture out into space. But these are big ideas that that need to be discussed at some point so we can make a plan and figure out what we have to do to start heading in that direction. I remember when I was in college, back in the Stone Age... No, I'm just kidding. When I was back in college, I think it was 04, I did a research paper on honeybees. I had no idea how important honeybees were. Now, as the years went on, we had what was known as the Colony Collapse Disorder And that's where these honeybees were just kind of dying, and the scientists were scrambling, trying to figure out what the heck was going on because these honeybees are so vital to our food supply. If you don't have pollination on tomato plants, for example, strawberries, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I could give you a whole list of of fruits and vegetables that are reliant on the honeybees pollinating them. So when the honeybees... We're experiencing that colony collapse disorder, it was alarming. I'll put a deal like this. If you wiped out all of the honeybees and they could not pollinate anything, first of all, we'd have to do the pollination ourselves, which would, take a, which, which would take a lot of work. And if you didn't do that, the only thing you'd really be left with would be root vegetables. Like you would have carrots, you would have potatoes, uh, onions, but there would be very little left of our fruit supply and vegetable supply that we enjoy. So this next news bit is about the honeybee. Following, according to the Philadelphia Inquirer, honeybees are at risk along with the crops they pollinate. These Pennsylvania scientists think the solution lies in the insects' brains. The honeybees looked perfectly healthy, buzzing about their boxy wooden hive on a warm autumn day in central Pennsylvania. Elizabeth Capaldi suspected otherwise. Clad in a protective white suit and hat, the biologist reached out with a gloved hand to capture one of the insects, in a small vial, then took it back to her Bucknell University laboratory to dissect its brain. Her colleague David Ruvignac later placed a sample of the bee's innards in a large metal cylinder and pelted it with high-frequency radio waves, a type of scanning technology that revealed the amounts of certain telltale chemicals within. Their goal was to identify early warning signs that the bee is under stress so that beekeepers can try to rescue a threatened hive before it's too late. Honeybees have been in decline for decades, causing headaches and higher costs for farmers who depend on the insects to pollinate their apples, almonds, and 130 other fruit, nut, and vegetable crops. The issue made headlines in 2006 with the emergence of a mysterious new phenomenon called colony collapse disorder, but the broader downward in bee health was underway well before that and continues to this day. The causes include climate change, pesticides, and disease, said Capaldi, who studied insect behavior and neuroscience at the Liberal Arts University in Lewisburg. In bad years, the combination of insults can wipe out more than half of a beekeeper's colonies. Honeybees are suffering, she said. All of these factors have united together to create a stressful environment for honeybee colonies across the country. She and Rovenecke, A chemistry professor at Bucknell realized five or six years ago that the problem might lend itself to an interdisciplinary solution. The pair joined forces with colleague Marie Pizzorno, an expert in viruses, as one factor in the insect's decline is a virus that deforms their wings. They want to identify chemical stress indicators that become elevated in a bee's brain months before the insects display any outward signs of decline. The cylindrical device... Brovnik uses to detect these substances, called a spectrometer, would be impractical for any beekeeper or farmer. But once the researchers determine which chemicals are the best predictors of bee health, they want to develop a low-cost test that could be deployed in the real world. Now every spring, just as the apple blossoms are starting to bloom, a flatbed truck rolls up to Holobro Farms in the middle of the night, laden with 100 honeybee hives. Workers set up the boxy containers across 150 acres that produce more than 50 varieties of apples. Hollabo, assistant business manager of the farm in Biglerville, just north of Gettysburg. We try to get spread them out while it's dark before the bees wake up, she said. A decade ago, the farm rented the hives for $50 apiece. A few years ago, the price rose to 60 and this past spring, it was 100 for a total of $10,000, she said. Beekeepers have cited a variety of reasons for the increases, such as higher fuel costs and disruptions related to COVID-19. But every year, a major factor in higher costs is that many colonies don't survive the winter, meaning beekeepers must scramble to to raise new ones in time for the growing season. You can't just manufacture a bee on a processing line in a factory, she said. They have to be bred and given time to develop new hives. Experienced beekeepers such as Capaldi, the Bucknell scientist, can often tell when a hive is starting to fall simply by looking at it. A lack of a brood is another warning sign. But by that point, it might already be too late. A year ago, Capaldi judged that her eight hives at Bucknell were under stress, likely because the fall asters and goldenrods had produced less nectar than usual. So throughout the winter, she supplemented the insects' food with sugar. Now, even so, just two of the hives survived. Now, if you're just joining me, what we're talking about here is the honeybee collapse. The honeybee collapse disorder, the problems with honeybees. As I mentioned here, there is a virus that's deforming their wings, and you know how vitally important they are to our food supply. Now, this goes on. The first sign of trouble for the insects came in the 1980s with the introduction of a parasite mite from overseas, says Pizzorno, the Bucknell virologist. Relative to the size of the honeybee, these parasites, called destructor, are enormous. It'd be like having a tick on your body that's the size of a dinner plate, she said. Wow, that's some um, visual, isn't it? Scientists later would discover that in addition to inflicting harm directly, the parasites also transmitted a virus to the honeybees that deforms their wings. Researchers have also established that climate change affects the bees in a variety of ways, Capaldi said, early warm spells or unusual rain patterns could cause flowers to bloom too early and disappear by the time the insects are looking for nectar. When the colony is growing, the flowers may not be available, she said. Certain pesticides and other practices of large-scale industrial agriculture can also add to the stress, she said. That includes the way the bees are deployed, trucked from farm to farm, where they, where they subsist on one crop for days at a time. Increasingly, throughout the 1990s, beekeepers reported that some of their colonies did not survive the winter. Then in 2006, beekeepers discovered that some colonies were dying in an unusual way. Instead of dying in or near the hive, bees were simply vanishing, apparently flying off to die elsewhere. While beekeepers have reported fewer cases of this colony collapse disorder in recent years, in part because they have developed better management techniques, the causes remain somewhat unclear. Capaldi blames many of the same factors that are behind the bee's overall decline that began in the late 1980s. So this has been somewhat of a problem for a while. But I think when the colony collapse disorder got national attention, like this article says 2006, that's when people started to to realize what was happening. There's a lot of special reports going on. At that time, they had no idea what was happening. Now we kind of know it's a combination of things. Now, the stout silver spectrometer at Bucknell contains a magnet more powerful than the ones used in MRI machines, said Ravnek, the chemistry professor. To identify telltale metabolic chemicals in the bee brain, he places the tiny clump of material in a small receptacle at the center of the device, then hits it with radio waves, causing the various substances to resonate in such a way that their relative amounts can be measured. Each molecule rings with a distinct set of patterns, like a chord, he said. In one study, he and others found that an amino acid called proline was elevated in the honeybees that were infected with the deformed wing virus well before they showed outward signs of disease. So before their wings were deformed by this virus, there was an amino acid called proline that was elevated in the brains. That's what they discovered here. The scientists have since identified other protein fragments that may be signs of stress possibly because the insects are changing their eating habits in response to infection. But more work is needed. Now, in the meantime, significant fraction of colonies keep failing every winter. 30% one year, 40% or 50% the next, according to surveys by the nonprofit Bee Informed Partnership. For now, breeders have to keep up with the demand for new colonies, but at some point, maybe they won't. It just seems to be getting more and more challenging every few years, he said, and there's no signs that this is stopping. So this is continuing to be an ongoing problem, keeping these honeybees healthy, trying to to find out the best way to combat these viruses, weather patterns changing, which make things bloom early. Quite frankly, things can bloom when the honeybees aren't even out and about looking for nectar yet. So an early bloom period is actually hurting things as well, and then you have Insecticides that may be a factor here, also. You cannot overstate how important these honeybees are. Very interesting stuff. Hopefully, we can figure out the best way to to combat these things because these honeybees are extraordinarily important. Now, we all know that as you age, as you get older, you get wiser. You learn from life's mistakes, life events. You learn from the good stuff and the bad stuff in life. Now, this from Scientific American, your response to stress improves as you grow older. No one is a stranger to stress. Decades of research made it clear that major life events such as a death of a spouse or start of a new job can take a lot of energy and attention. But more recently, scientists have made inroads in understanding how smaller daily stressors shape our mood and experience. David Almeida, a developmental psychologist and professor of human development and family studies at... Pennsylvania State University has been following the stressors of daily life in a group of more than 3,000 adults since 1995. Almedia spoke with Mind Matters editor Daisy U.S. to discuss some of the silver linings of aging that that he has discovered, and how difficult national or global events can tip the scales against us. So they asked this psychologist, how do you track daily stressors? And he said, we ask people at the end of every day to answer a series of structured questions. Originally, we used telephone calls, now we use web-based approaches. We ask about how they spent their time, their mood, their physical symptoms, who they interacted with, and then ask a lot of questions about the types of stressors they experienced that day. For some studies, we also collected a sample of saliva, which lets, which lets us determine the amount of stress hormones in the body. With that method, we've worked with a large group of people. And they also asked, You recently published findings from an analysis of 2,845 adults aged between 22 and 77 at the start over 20 years. In that work, you found that people seem less stressed as they grow older. Can you unpack that? That's what, this is what they asked the psychologist. And he says, yes. Finally, some good news about daily stress. It seems to get a little bit better. We find that younger people report more exposure to stressful events, things people find challenging, upsetting, or disruptive, than older people do. So people in their 20s may report stressors on at least 40-50% to of days, but by the time you're in your 70s, that goes down to maybe 20-25% to of days. In addition, we looked at how much distress people experience or the way they respond to stress. Here we see the same type of pattern, with young adults having higher stress on days with stressors than older people. But around 55 years old, that age advantage, where your response to stress stress gets better with age, starts to taper off and plateau. Now they ask, why is there an age advantage in dealing with stress? And he says, I think three reasons could contribute and work together. One has to do with the social roles people inhabit. When you're young, these roles could include being a parent of a young child, starting a job, getting into new relationships. new new roles are stressful, as are role conflicts that happen when you have multiple roles going on at once. A second reason could be that as we grow older, we realize we only have so much life left and want to make the most of it, so we're very motivated to enjoy it. The third reason, which I am most interested in, is that just by virtue of experiences, opportunities, and past stressors we learn how to deal with them and become more expert in dealing with daily stressors as we get older. And they said, does that explain why research suggests older people are happier than younger ones? In response as people grow older, you can list all the things that you shouldn't be looking forward to, such as physical health decline, loss of friends, being sick and cognitive decline. These are not things that you would expect to be related to increased happiness. But we see over and over that as people grow older, they have increased life satisfaction. That said, there is a point when this pattern stops. Much later in life, in someone's 80s or 90s, I think we're seeing a time where things are really tough. And there's a decrease in life satisfaction. They ask, how do things like economic and political uncertainty and the backdrop of our lives affect our day-to-day stress? And here's the answer. We were able to study the effects of the 2008 recession and post-recession period. Looking at our data, it's fairly clear that compared with 1995, adults in 2010 had more stressful daily lives and were more distressed by those experiences. Our hypothesis is that this reflects historical changes, such as the recession and the use of technologies that have changed social interaction. From that, we can speculate on how economic downturn and other changes may affect us. In future work, we hope to see what the pandemic has done, but it's possible that we won't see much of an age advantage, for example, in this period. What really surprised us from our analysis of the 2008 recession was that this difference in stress seems to be concentrated among midlife people. I would have thought that your younger adults just starting their careers and older adults in retirement would be worse off. But no, it was the adults in their mid-40s through mid-60s who reported higher levels of psychological distress. I think this has to do with the social roles of a midlife adult. They are worried about their kids, but also their parents. Now, the interviewer here asks the psychologist, on a practical note, what should we be trying to remove all stressors from our daily life? And his response is, there's something that might actually be good about having some daily stress. People who report having no stress in their lives, you think they're happy, lucky, happy people, but they also report feeling fewer positive things in their lives. They have fewer people in their lives and perform worse on cognitive tests. It's the reactivity to stress, how you respond to it, that really matters to your health and well-being. It's not the number of stressors, but actually your emotional response that can, for example, give you cardiovascular disease, increase inflammation, and and can contribute to dying earlier. Now think about that, folks. The power of your mind is extraordinary. Now, if you're listening to the show today and you have experienced some major stress in your life, we all have stress at some point or another in our lives. The most important thing that you can do for yourself in handling that, there are many, many, there are many different things you can do, but one thing in particular is exercise. And of course, if you're interested in doing that and, and, and working out and increasing your, and boosting your mood, getting that dopamine, that serotonin level up so you feel good mentally and physically, of course, as I say on the show here, the sponsor of The S-Factor, Tawny Basil, Tawny Fit, contact her. But I, I cannot talk about stress in life without mentioning working out because it, it makes such a dramatic impact. Is that the answer for all of it? No, but it is a big piece. But the power of the mind is another part of it. How you handle the stressful situations. Your mind has so much to do with it. And your mind, as he's saying here, and he is correct, the psychologist is saying, your mind can play a role in cardiovascular health. In other words, if you're always stressed out to the max, I mean, you can't really exist that long that way without seeing some major health implications. So, very true words here. So, according to this psychologist's data, our stress decreases as we age. But if you're in your 80s or 90s, that's when the stress goes back up again because you're worried about your health and cognitive decline and you may be dealing with all of those things. So very interesting data here. If you would like to reach out to me, have a question about the show, a story that I'm covering here on the S Factor, email me. Info at scienceanimated.net. That's info at scienceanimated.net. There are no phone calls on this radio show because it is pre-recorded, but I will reply to all of your email. I do it in a very quick fashion. You can reach out to me also on Facebook at facebook.com slash scienceanimated and twitter.com slash scienceanimated. Don't forget to check out the YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash scienceanimatededucation. And be on the lookout for a new YouTube series under the Science Animated umbrella. Under the microscope with Orbit, that series will be kicking off in a week or so, so stay tuned for that. And of course, you can check out all things Science Animated, including this radio show and all the past episodes, at scienceanimated.net. Now, earlier in the show, we talked about Elon Musk and his great plans to help preserve humanity and get us started on the journey of setting up bases on the moon and on Mars and wherever else we can do that in our own solar system, just as an extra insurance policy to ensure our survival as a species, right? And I said, you know, there are many calamities that can happen here on Earth. There's things that can come from space there are some things out there that can happen to us that make uh, it would just be a bad day at the office, to say the least. This next story talks about one of those things that could possibly happen. This is from Space.com. Supernovas are bad news. They can wreck biospheres and flood planets with deadly radiation. And now, a recent study has added a new potential threat, a special type of supernova that can destroy a planet's ozone layer years after the initial explosion. When giant stars die in massive explosions called supernovas, they temporarily become some of the most luminous objects in the universe. A single supernova can outshine the combined light of hundreds of billions of stars. To give you some perspective, the nearby star, Betelgeuse is going to explode any day now. That's an astronomical any day, meaning sometime within the next few million years. Even though the star is over 600 light years from us, when it goes supernova, it will be the brightest object in our sky, second only to the sun. Betelgeuse will be visible during the day, shining brighter than a full moon. For a few weeks, during the peak of its blast, it will be so bright that it will cast shadows in the middle of the night. Despite the fearsome brightness, the visible light portion of a supernova represents only a tiny fraction of all the energy output. And besides, while intense amounts of visible light may cause blindness, it doesn't have a lot of other serious effects. What's more worrisome is the high-energy radiation associated with a supernova, usually in the form of x-rays and gamma rays. High-energy radiation can catalyze oxygen, stripping away Earth's protective ozone layer. And without the ozone layer, life on the surface of our planet would suffer the full blast of ultraviolet radiation from the sun, which could lead to an extinction event. The radiation blast happens within the first few seconds of a supernova, but an even bigger threat comes later. Cosmic rays, which are subatomic particles, accelerated to nearly the speed of light, eventually burst out of the maelstrom hundreds or thousands of years later. They can carry a decent fraction of the total supernova supernova energy with them, and they can also strip ozone layers and soak a planet's surface in deadly radiation. Based on the threats posed by gamma ray and cosmic rays, Astronomers have already concluded that we are relatively safe. There are no nearby supernova candidates that can pose a threat to life on Earth. Well, thank goodness for that. Now, thankfully, Earth remains safe, as we know, of no candidate X-ray supernovas nearby. But this new study places further limits on the galactic habitable zone, the region in each galaxy, that can support life. In the outermost reaches of a galaxy, star formation is too low to build up the necessary ingredients for rocky planets but the dense cores where stars live and die at a frantic pace are also deadly because frequent supernova floods their surroundings with radiation new study shows that the inner edge of the galactic habitable zone is probably further away from the core of the galaxy than we previously assumed despite getting hit here and there however earth is in one of the safest neighborhoods of the entire galaxy well i'm glad that story ended on a high note (laughs) Well, I want to thank you for joining me once again here on The S-Factor, where it's all about science and technology. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer of ScienceAnimated.net, the latest science animations, and my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash scienceanimatededucation. Again, I got that new series starting up under the microscope with Orbit. Be sure to check it out. Until next time be safe and stay curious. This is Chuck Shazer with the S-Factor on Cruisin' 92.1 WVLT brought to you by ScienceAnimated.net. Take care, everybody.